stem speaks and what a speech it is we are going to enter one of the great sinners of hell's landscape a place that rivals francesca rivals ferranata is truly one of the master strokes of dialogue and monologue so let's get to it hi i'm mark scarborough this is the podcast walking with dante we are in the 13th canto of inferno we're going to go through lines 46 through 78 let me just say that if you haven't listened to the two previous episodes you might want to go back because the two episodes ago that episode is all about Ovid and Virgil which is so central to this passage and the previous episode is how we got here well we're in the seventh circle of hell we're in the second ring those violent against themselves Virgil has already said you wouldn't believe it even if I told you what's about to happen Dante breaks off a branch from a thorny bramble and the thing oozes out blood and somehow hisses out a voice and blood at the same moment from the break in the stem. And that's where we're picking it up. Lines 46 through 78 of Canto 13. If he could have believed it first, oh wounded soul, my sage said, these type of things he's only seen in my verses. He would never have lifted his hand against you. But your unbelievable fate made me put him to this test that weighs me down. But tell him who you were, so that as a way to even the score, he might refresh your fame in the world above, where he has leave to return. And the branch. You speak so sweetly that you goad me on, until it's not possible for me to stay silent. May it not be grievous to you if I am lured with the bait to speak a little more. I am the one who held both the keys to the heart of Frederick, and I used them so discreetly that when I locked and unlocked it, that I held the secrets back from almost everybody. I was so faithful to my glorious office that I lost a lot of sleep over it. And then my life. The whore who never turned her slutty eyes from Caesar's house, the common cause of death and the vices of courts everywhere, set fire to all the souls against me, and they on fire set fire to Augustus, so that my bright honors turned to woeful sadness. My spirit, the taste of such disdain, and believing that by dying I could get away from the spitefulness, made me unjust against my own just self. By the roots of this newly planted tree, I swear to you both that I never broke faith with my lord, who was so worthy of honor. And if one of you returns to the world, sure of my memory, which still languishes because of the gut punch that envy gave it. And that's the speech, the first speech of two, from this sinner who is now a bush in hell. Did you not love this? If you remember the last episode of this podcast, I made a great deal about belief and faith and interpretation because here we come. It's going to play out 
in spades in this episode of Walking with Dante. So without any further ado, let's get to it. Let's start with Virgil. If he could have believed it first, a wounded soul, my sage said, Virgil says, you know, hey, if this pilgrim could have believed it, well, then I wouldn't have made him do this. But he couldn't believe it because, and here's the kicker line of the kicker lines, these type of things he's only seen in my verses. Remember Polydorus, remember Aeneas pulling up the shrubs, remember the blood coming up out of the ground and Polydorus saying, why do you rend me? Dante's only seen this stuff in my verse and, well, you know, how do you trust what you read? How do you trust what you read? After all, so much here in Inferno has been about Virgil and a Virgilian landscape, and so much of hell has looked like Virgil's hell. Cerberus, Karen, so much. And what if you can't trust it or you see it but you can't believe it oh it's so complicated and Virgil says these type of things he's only seen in my verses how can you not love this this is so insane the old Latin poet is saying you know he's only read this before out of me so he couldn't believe it how could he possibly believe that yet unless he experienced himself what is Virgil's role right here what is going on? Why is Virgil saying, oh, it's just in my book. How could you believe that stuff? He would never have lifted his hand against you, Virgil said, but you're unbelievable. The word in the Florentine is incredible, but unbelievable. It's all about believing. Remember that last bit, I believe that he believed that I believed. And here we have yet another reference to belief. Your unbelievable fate made me put him to the test that weighs me down. Virgil feels guilty. And a constant question of belief and trust throughout this canto because, and this is where we're going to get to. So let me just play the ace trump now because writerly suicide is about writing an unbelievable text. If you want to write a novel right now or a memoir or anything that you want to write right now, hmm, stretch credulity and see what happens to you. Write, you know, a, a novel, let's say a realistic novel set in the 1950s and oh, I'm making this up in Oklahoma. And so in 1950s Oklahoma, here you are writing your novel about, I don't know, some woman that lives in, in Oklahoma in the 1950s and she's got an iPhone. You can't do that. It stretches credulity. It stretches the limits of what's believable in a text. And this entire canto is about where is the breaking point? How close to the breaking point of credulity can I get before the whole thing breaks apart? It's going to be the sinner's question and it's going to be the poet's question sitting out behind it. So Virgil says, tell him who you were. So that as a way to even the score, he might refresh your fame in the world up above where he has leave to return. That's a reference to Chaco, to Inferno, back with Chaco. Remember amongst the gluttons? And Chaco says, remember me up in the world? Here's another sinner who is, in fact, being mm, taunted on, lured on with the hope that once the pilgrim comes back up above, that the pilgrim will then repeat this story and continue the fame, continue knowing who this person was. And of course, it's what happens. We're going to know who this person is because Dante set it down here. And some of what this person, this sinner, we'll get to him in a minute, some of what he says 
isn't necessarily true to the historical record. In fact, it's pushed different ways from the historical record. Intriguing that this sinner is not exactly who now we know historically he is. And did Dante know that? Or is Dante making suppositions? Or is he pressing the limits of credulity? Is he, as my mother would say, pushing his luck? And he may well be pushing his luck. So let's pass on and listen to what this guy says. So the branch starts its hissing, bubbling, bleeding voice. I had no idea how to do that, by the way. So I just gave him kind of this highfalutin, arty-farty voice because he is very arty-farty. So that's how I tried to, do, to, to pitch him. But I don't know what to do for this guy. So anyway, the voice, the branch, bubbles, hisses, bleeds, and says, you speak so sweetly that you goad me on until it's not possible for me to stay silent. Let me just say that this guy in the branch is speaking in super florid Florentine. It is elaborate, rhetorically dense. The passages are well thorny. They're bramble-like. The sentences are very hard to unpack. My lines in my translation, if you want to see them, you can find them on my website, markscarbo.com, if you want to actually see what how I've translated it. My lines are extremely long because I'm trying to unpack this incredibly florid speech that this character engages in. Very twisty, like the branches of his own bush. Easy to get lost, labyrinth of rhetoric. So he says, you speak so sweetly that you goad me on until it's not possible for me to stay silent. May it not be grievous to you if I'm lured with the bait. And that's that's a big translation for one verb. He, he uses a word that, we, an old word in English, enlimed. It refers to putting a kind of lime on a branch. And when a songbird sits on it, it catches them. Back in the day, well, maybe it is still the day, but back in the day when people wanted to eat songbirds or capture them, so that they could have them in cages around their manor house. You enlimed a branch. And that's the word he uses. So he says, if I'm enlimed, just speak a little more. If I'm lured with a bait like a bird, he hopes it's not grievous for them. And then this character never names himself. He just says, I am the one. In other words, he speaks fully in paraphrases. I am the one who held both the keys to the heart of Frederick. We've seen Frederick. Frederick is in Farinata's tomb. Remember when Dante said, who else is in there besides Cavalcante? Who else Farinata is down there? Hmm, Frederick II came up. This links us back to the heretics. It links us back to Farinata. There are links going in all toward Chaco, toward Canto One, <laughs> toward Limbo. There are links going in every direction here. And it's important to see that. I held the keys to the heart of Frederick, both the keys, two keys. You know who else holds two keys? St. Peter. Jesus gives the keys, the two keys to the kingdom of heaven to Peter in the gospels. But this isn't messianic. This is secular power. And you'll note, Canto 13 comes after the tyrants. And here we find one of the lackeys of the tyrants. 
a guy who served Frederick in the court of Sicily. So let's just talk just a little bit about this guy. Who really is this who is speaking so paraphrastically about himself? This is Pierre or Pietro or Piero. His name appears in many different ways. Most people say now Pierre de la Vigne, but you should know Pietro de la Vigne. Piero della Vigna or Vignier. His, oh, his name slips around in the historical record. I'm just going to sit with Pierre della Vigna and let it go right there. He was born about 1190 to a fairly modest family, and he rises to prominence in Frederick II's court. Frederick II is the Holy Roman Emperor. He's down in Sicily. He's reigning from down there. And remember, his court is an absolute paradise of learning, full of Islamic scholars. Much of what we know about algebra and math comes up through Frederick's court, as does the new style of poetry, partly from Islamic poets, the new style of love poetry that Dante himself perfects. This guy, Pierre de la Vigne, is Frederick's, well, the word is logothete, he's his mouthpiece. He's, his, he, he's the guy that speaks for him. He's his spokesperson. He's more than a press secretary. When he speaks, it's as if Frederick himself is speaking. Big position from a modest family. He actually helped draft Frederick's world-changing code of laws. He was a poet, although it's not clear that Dante the poet knows that Pierre de la Vigne was a poet. But I can say that Brunetta Latini, potentially Dante's teacher, does cite Pierre de la Vigne as an example of rhetorical skill, someone who really worked hard and well at the pleasures of rhetoric. And let me just say his speech is highly rhetorical. After his death, after Pierre de la Vigne dies, Frederick holds him up as a warning against court corruption. But that's a little bit farther beyond this passage. Here, clearly, Pierre de la Vigne is a suicide who commits suicide to avoid, avoid court intrigue. I should tell you that that's not necessarily everywhere in the historical record. That's the part that it's questionable what Dante knew. There is a story about this guy essentially killing himself in front of Frederick to make a point. It's questionable whether that comes up actually after Dante. And so it's based on Dante's telling. There's all kinds of historical slippage here in this character of Pierre de la Vigne. And it's hard to actually pin him down as a historical figure, except to say that we know all of this great law writing that he did, except that we know that he was the mouthpiece of Frederick, and except that we know he died. He was in prison and blinded. We also know that. And he may have been killed by Frederick or he may have killed himself. Again, record is unclear. But he speaks of himself in this florid, paraphrastic style without ever naming himself. And watch how he justifies himself. I am the one, back to his speech, who held both the keys to the heart of Frederick. And I used them so discreetly that when I locked and unlocked it, I held his secrets back from almost everybody. This is a real bureaucrat. This is somebody who knows how to work the levers of power without being in them. I was so faithful, he says, to my glorious office that I lost a lot of sleep over it and then my life. That sentence 
God, so beautiful, right? I stayed up all night working. <laughs> this job was so important to me, and I was so into my position, and I lost so much sleep over it, and then drops the bomb, my life. And you should know that there's a play going on here. In the, in the Florentine, Frederick's name is Federigo, Federigo, and he says, I was so fede, and fede... I was so faithful to my glorious office. I was so fede. And fede, F-E-D-E, is found inside of federigo. So there's all kinds of play on trust and belief going on inside this passage. So what he's did is he just established himself as an important bureaucratic functionary, someone very close to the heart of power, someone, in fact, who holds the keys to that heart of power in a kind of blasphemous inversion of St. Peter and the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on and his justification becomes more intense. The whore who never turned her slutty eyes from Caesar's house. Now we know when we read down this passage that the very last line names this whore as envy. And surely Envy is a part of every court. It is the problem. The courtiers are all envious of each other and trying desperately to stab each other in the back constantly in order to get closer to power. So he says the whore who, was never, who has never turned her slutty eyes from Caesar's house. And notice he's defining Frederick as Caesar, as this great emperor. And he is a holy Roman emperor. So sure, okay, fair enough. But still, it still jumps out. He, this, this bureaucrat, this functionary, this person high up in the, in the structure of power in the Holy Roman Empire, Pierre de la Vigne, he's so high up that he believes it. He, he, he's, he's bought it at Klein and Sinker. This is Caesar's house, the common cause of death and the vice of courts everywhere. As I said, courts run on envy. That's what you do. That's what you do as the tyrant. You want to make sure that you've destabilized everyone else around you so that they're never quite sure that they're standing on firm ground. So they're always attacking each other and, well, never you. So this whore turned her slutty eyes all over the place. And then he says, set fire to all the souls against me. And they on fire set fire to Augustus. Oh, now he's redefined Frederick as Augustus Caesar. But okay, set fire to Augustus so that my bright honors turn to woeful sadness. Three times the uh, versions of the verb infiammare are used. So I could translate this as inflame too, that all of this inflamed the souls against me and they inflamed, inflamed Augustus so that my bright honors turned to woeful sadness. So many threes. Go back to the second tercet of Canto 13. Non, non, non. That threesome up there that we talked about in the last episode of this podcast so many threes everywhere this is a complicated reference to court life and listen this is how this relates to canto 12 and canto 13 canto 12 was about the tyrants canto 13 is about the guys who serve the tyrants and what happens to them and how do you please your tyrant and what happens to you when you fall out of favor with your tyrant? This is the problem with tyranny. And surely you know, for our poet, 
in exile. This has got to be sitting right in the background. This is the problem. Politics, <laughs> politics will kill you. You will lose your life, ultimately trying to serve some sort of worldly master, especially an emperor, especially a tyrant. What else does Pierre de la Vena say about himself? He says, my spirit at the taste of such disdain, and you should know this is a little difficult to translate. It's not clear whether he's tasting the disdain or it's the taste of their disdain. It's the, the rhetoric is so complicated here and the style is so formal. It's, it's hard to actually pin it down. And that may be intentional in the passage. It may be that Pierre de la Vagne speaks in such a way that he is trying not to be pinned down, to use incredibly florid speech so that you can never quite get what he's saying. You're just always caught up in the gorgeousness of his language and believing that by dying, <laughs> do I have to point it out to you? Believing that by dying, I could get away from the spitefulness. It's all a matter of trust and belief and believing what I could do and how does that trust work and think about all that stuff from the last passage. How do you trust what you read and think about that line in the last passage when the pilgrim said it was, well, the poet says, I believe that Virgil believed that I believed. Oh my gosh. Think about all that and the belief statements running right and left and here the belief statements are adding up to a suicide made me unjust against my own just self. I have to read this to you in the Florentine because it's so unbelievable. L'animo mio, my spirit, and then there's the bit about disdain and believing and all that, but l'animo mio, ingiusto fece me contra me giusto, unjustly made me against my just self. The line made me unjust against my own just self starts with the word unjust, ingiusto, ends with the word just, and in the middle of the line, it's me contra me, made me against myself. Is not this the very root of suicide? Me contra me, me against myself. And that the root Dante seems to be saying for us, how do I say this? A non-unified soul is the root of suicide. That, that this soul is divided such that this soul believes that he can kill himself and solve his problems, thereby believing that his soul is not a thing, but at least two things, me contre me. And it's this division that is so chilling, and that line is so gorgeous. Ingiusto fece me contra me giusto. It's so tight rhetorically. It's so florid. It's so perfectly balanced. Ingiusto at the front, giusto at the back. Fece me contra me. It's, it's like the line itself is a, is a hall of mirrors. And this hall of mirrors is basically the suicide. He just told you the moment of his suicide. Inside this rhetorical flourish, in giusto fece me contra me giusto. He goes on, he says, by the roots of this newly planted tree, I swear to you both. <laughs> in other words, believe me that I never broke faith with my Lord, who was so worthy of honor. And if one of you returns to the world, short my memory, which still languishes because of the gut punch that 
envy gave it. There's so much paraphrasis going on here, right? He, there's the paraphrasis about himself, not naming himself. There's the paraphrasis of who's the whore that is the common cause of death and the vice of very courts. And now it's named at the end, envy. There's so much paraphrastic phrasing running in every direction in this passage. It's crazy. And it seems, well, how do I say this? It seems again that the mo- that the deadly sins are motivations rather than actions. The motivation underneath this is envy. So we have changed from that initial understanding that the seven deadly sins are actions to now, as we've discussed endlessly, the seven deadly sins are motivations for the actions of violence and fraud and treachery, as we'll get to it. But (laughs) it's harder than you think here. You got to go back to Dryope. You got to go back to Ovid. This, at least Pierre Delvenia is claiming, is it's not his fault. Remember that Dryope story in Ovid and she gets turned into the tree and she says, I didn't do anything to deserve this. You realize that that's this entire speech. And you realize that if if Pierre de la Vigne has, in fact, diagnosed the situation correctly, that means he's right because it's the envy in others. It's not, he's not saying I had any envy. He's saying the envy in others made me kill myself. In other words, there's an inadvertent act of, uh, well, damnation that goes on here, but it's not the primary motivation. And not only that, the problem, the sin, the thing that God is against is over in everyone else. There's two ways to look at this. You can look at this that Pierre de la Vigne is one of the most oily speakers in all of Inferno and that he has managed to turn this thing on its head so that you don't even know which way is up. He says that it set all the fires, it set a fire, all the souls against me and they on fire set a fire to Augustus, meaning Frederick, so that my bright earners were turned to woeful sadness. I didn't do anything. I was in court Court is filled with envy. It got the better of everybody. They were all after me. They turned Frederick against me. I tasted that disdain, and I thought I have to get away. I I can't live in this. Listen, who doesn't understand this? You're caught in this bureaucratic power structure. You've believed it for so long. You're just sitting there inside the power, supporting it, believing in your position, and you think, oh, my God, I got to get out. I can't take this anymore. And how do you get out? Mm. Made me unjust against my own just self. Just. He calls himself just. Is that the truth? Because it seems like he's condemned here for suicide, not because he was just. If he were just, he wouldn't be in Inferno. He'd be up in Paradiso somewhere. He'd at least be in Purgatorio, and I could tell you where he'd be in Paradiso if he were a just soul. So what's he doing here then if he's so just? And why is his suicide blamed on other people? Why is this rhetoric and this flourish, and why is it set here so that then perhaps you can't trust it? Which means that there's a text sitting in front of you that you can't trust. Pierre de la Vigne's speech, which goes back to Virgil and trusting Virgil, which goes forward to Dante the poet and trusting his text. Curious and complex and ironic and playing with fire. One more bit about this passage. 
Years ago, the dentista David Higgins found a extremely tight rhetorical structure to this passage, and I just want to rehearse for you what he claims. He claims that that, that what Pierre de la Vigne is doing is a typical rhetorical strategy. That is, A, he's capturing the the goodwill of his audience, and that's that opening bit. You speak so sweetly, you goad me on, you inline me, you lure me on to speak more. He's capturing my goodwill. Oh, I'm doing this because you're so nice. Then he narrates the events at the heart of things, right? Here's the whole what happened, and I held the keys, and you come out at the back to a climax, to the to the absolute moment in which everything turns. And of course, that moment here is this, uh, the suicide made me unjust against myself. And then you end with an appeal. And the whole point, according to Higgins, of a rhetorical strategy like this is to get to the appeal. The appeal is don't forget me. By this newly panetry, I swear to you both that I never broke faith with my Lord who is so worthy of honor. And if one of you returns to the world, shore up my memory, which still languishes because of the gut punch that envy gave it. I did this whole flattering narration, flattering you, flattering me, rhetorical appeals, rising to a climax of the action that is stated in an incredibly gorgeous way. But really what I'm driving for is this appeal. Don't forget me. Say my name so that people remember me. And here it happens. Dante comes back up to the surface. But what does Dante the poet know? Because here's Pierre de la Vigne. Here he is inside of comedy. So much of what he's told us in this speech right here has now become part of the historical record. Is it the historical record? Is this what happened to Pierre de la Vigne? Other people disagree. Other people claim that Frederick put him to death, that he did not commit suicide. Some people claim that he did steal from Frederick's treasury. Later, Frederick does hold him up as an example of courtly corruption. It's not that he's just, it's that he's skimming. Is Dante conscious of that? Is he changing the historical record? Because I can tell you that a lot of commentary on this passage accepts at face value Pierre de la Vigne's speech about himself. Are we supposed to? Haven't we been set up not to? I believe that he believed that I believe. Haven't we been set up that there's a problem with taking texts at face value, that the act of interpretation is an act of trust? Am I to trust this text? Am I to trust Pierre de la Vigne's speech? And furthermore, then, by extension, am I to trust Dante's? Oh, fire. Talk about infiammare. Talk about inflaming. That's a lot of fire to play with as a writer. To stretch credulity to its limits and see how far I can push you. To make you believe things. To push out. To push beyond Ovid. To push beyond Virgil. To take their texts and rewrite them so that bleeding lotuses and bleeding Polydorus become this text. And we're not done. There's so much more. Canto 13. This canto is wild. It is... I'm going to use a word that is wrong, but it is postmodern. In <laughs> it's insane. I feel that I need to slap my own self for that. It is postmodern 
in its level of complication and irony and its flattening of history and its unbelievable zero-sum game that it's going on with truth and verity and credulity. Oh my gosh. This is why you slow walk through Dante, is to hit this. So, come back. Come back next time, and we're going to continue on, because Pierre d'Alvergne, he's not done yet. He's got more to say, if you can believe it, having justified himself so far. He's got a lot more to say. It's going to get weirder and stranger, and Dante's going to have to figure out, wait a minute, if things are transformed, what happens to the resurrection of the body, and... Oh, so many moral, ethical, and metaphysical questions rolling all around inside this passage. So come back, subscribe to this podcast, like it, connect with me on social media, wherever you find me. I would love to talk more about Dante with you because I love comedy. Wow. Because of passages like this one. I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is Walking with Dante. Dante.